One of the things we do on the program here is talk about being behind enemy lines in the Highlands, you know. <clears throat> and it's funny, right? Because, yeah, Matt Meyer is born there, and the governor, uh, the mayor's over there, and Coons is over there, and all that, so it's funny. <clears throat> but there are actually people that are be, um, behind enemy lines, like right now. And it stuck with me because uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were able to interview uh, Maya El Hayat. Uh, the poet from Palestine who was here for a conference, and she has returned with her family in occupied Jerusalem, and that's where she is um, today. And so, um, yeah, my thoughts were with her, and I wrote a little thing about the uh, the news uh, that I would like to talk about before we start uh, our special program on Indigenous Peoples Day. So uh, last week, Hamas um, executed a surprise resistance effort, striking occupied uh, Israeli territory to the east of the Gaza Strip. The Israeli paper, the centrist liberal newspaper of record uh, in in Israel, Haaretz, uh, said this in their editorial. The the disaster that befell Israel on the holiday of uh, Simchat Torah is the clear responsibility of one person, Benjamin Netanyahu. The prime minister who has prided himself on his vast political experience and irreplaceable wisdom in security matters completely failed to identify the dangers he was consciously leading Israel into when establishing a government of annexation and dispossession, when appointing Smotrich and Ben Gavir to key positions, while embracing a foreign policy that openly ignored the existence and rights of Palestinians. So the two, um, if, you don't, if you're not familiar, <coughs> the two men that were uh, referenced there, um, Smoetrick is the finance minister. Uh, he is a self-described fascist homophobe, so that's nice. And uh, Ben Gavir um, is uh, the national security minister. He is famous uh, for many things. Uh, one is having a framed picture of Dr. Baruch Goldstein um, that he proudly displays in his home in his office. Um, Dr. Goldstein was a settler from Brooklyn, New York, uh, a medical doctor who massacred uh, 29 people in the West Bank in 1994. So these people are genocidal maniacs and lunatics. So everybody knows how I feel about it. <clears throat> but I just wanted to close the little introduction with, um, with some words from uh, Professor Khalidi. Professor Khalidi is a historian uh, at Columbia. And he wrote a book, I believe it's called The Hundred Years' War Against Palestine, um, this is from uh, an interview he did last year with Nathan J. Robinson and Current Affairs. So I'll just leave it to him to, to explain it. I think there's another point to be made. I'd arg- I argue in the book various forms of armed action, including especially attacks on civilians, are horrific, immoral, and very importantly, politically counterproductive. I go into this in some detail at one point in the book. But it has to be said that slaughtering civilians is slaughtering civilians. When Israel kills 16 children and 5 women in Gaza using 2,000-pound bombs and hellfire missiles, you don't describe that as terrorism. And you describe the death of an Israeli child or an Israeli woman or another Israeli citizen as terrorism. This is Orwellian language. You are simply using the word terrorism as a bludgeon to demonize Palestinian resistance. Whereas somehow the murder of children in Gaza, 16 children were killed 
in these attacks. Five women were killed in these attacks. Heaven knows how many other civilians were killed. Maybe a dozen militants were killed. I don't know. But 30 or so civilians were murdered. If that's not terrorism, then the word has no meaning. This happens every single time. There were 240 civilians killed in one of these attacks a few years ago. Each time the toll is equally lopsided. Why are attacks on civilians not considered terrorism? If you use the same measure, I have no problem with the use of the term. But when you have to describe the use of Hellfire missiles and F-16s and heavy artillery in the same way. In the book, I go into the kinds of weapons that are used by Israel. The artillery, the missiles, the aircraft, the helicopters. And the indiscriminate nature of the attacks on a population of a couple of million people in a very tiny area. If that's not terrorism, I don't know what is. But of course, the term is applied only to the Palestinian. Somehow, Ukrainian resistance is not terrorism, yet Palestinian resistance is. I repeat, I think the killing of civilians is wrong and immoral. It's a violation of international law. But if that's true for the Palestinians, certainly it's true for the Israelis as well, and on a much larger scale. Oh, comrades and friends, hello. Uh, this is Rob. This is your Highlands Bunker podcast. Um, it is uh, a special. It's an Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, and um, to mark that, I wanted to have our resident historian, Sil Wolford, come in and give us uh, a, little, uh, a little lesson uh, on some local Indigenous history. And after that, we're going to talk to uh, our friend and, uh, and comrade, Brandon Fletcher, uh, about some stuff that he's doing that's very important, standing for uh, standing for an office. Um, so, Sill, uh, Brandon, thanks. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, the way this came together was actually both of you. I was mentioning to you before we came, before we started, um, when we were tra- when Brandon and I were trying to get together for an interview, and you said, "Oh, uh, this that's actually that particular day is Indigenous Peoples Day." It was, it was, I think, a few days after you had told the story, Sill, in our editorial meeting uh, about the, the chop tank. And, and you just you looked and you said, did you know there was a Native American um, reservation in Maryland? And I went, I did not know that. Um, so that's sort of how it started. Um, yeah, you want, do you want to give a little background about it? Let me give a background of why I... I am in this piece of, of history. Yeah, that's perfect, because that's how we got to it, right? You were right. following a string and c- kind of came to this. We are in, um, we, we are about to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the country, uh, 1776 plus 250 years. Um, and, and there are many events leading up to that. The Boston uh, Tea Party, uh, those kinds of things are already being celebrated 250th year. So... Um, I, as a local historian, and I am, as an African-American historian, folks ask me, well, where are the black folks at? And I don't have an answer. And the answer is there were not too many black folks who were free during the Revolutionary War. And the numbers are incredible. There were 9,000 blacks who, who fought with the Patriots, who fought with on George Washington's side on the... The, uh, the 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 George Washington Patriot side. There were twenty thousand who fought for the British 
And the reason we have that disparity is because the British said, we'll set you free if you fight with us. And, and uh, the Americans said, well, we'll keep slavery for another hundred years if you fight for us. So, uh, and, and again, in writing hist- or history books, we don't talk about that. And we don't talk about slavery having gone on for um, another hundred years after the Revolutionary War. But again, as as a historian and as a researcher, I said to myself, what about the Indians? Because folks are going to say, which side were the Indians on? Well, you know, where where were the Indians during the Revolutionary War? So I, I again, try to put it in some kind of framework because it's tough framing history. And I uh, took the Wolford family. And again, my name is Wolford, and, and, and I, my research project is actually called the, the Wolford Family During the Revolutionary War. And again, because I'm black, you assume I'm talking about black Wolfords. But I'm not talking about black Wolfords. I'm talking about white Wolfords. I'm talking about the Wolfords that enslaved my people, that enslaved my ancestors. I got their name from them. Uh, they came over in 1661 and got land grants in Dorchester County and, 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 and Somerset County. And that's where the Choptank Indians were. Um, originally, the Choptank Indian Reservation included Cambridge. It was, you know, all up and down um, the, the um, east coast of, of, uh, of, of Maryland. Uh, and again, they were the... the the colonists were trying to make peace with them. So they said, if you stay on that side of the, of the Nanakote river, we won't bother you. And we'll stay on this side of the Nanakote river. That lasted a couple of days. And, and then they decided that they were going to uh, negotiate with the uh, uh, Choptec Indians and say, okay, for 40 winter coats, give us Cambridge. And the 40 winter coats, these were leather coats with uh, beaver skin inside. Very warm coats. If you want, if you ever want a warm coat, try a leather coat with beaver inside. And for 40 winter coats, they took over Cambridge, the, the, city, of, the city of Cambridge. Now, again, you have to wrap your head around this say, and say, was that fair? Well, Manhattan, we have a guy from Brooklyn. This is... This is Brooklyn, but not Manhattan. The, the uh, Dutch took over Manhattan for $24 worth of beads. So you say, hey, maybe this was a good deal. Okay. Uh, all of these transactions, again, are um, legitimate, if we use the word. I don't know what the word legitimate means. Yeah, they, it's a little dicey when you're talking about a transaction like that. But yeah. <laughs> what? Well, they kept buying the reservation away from the Tropkeck Indians, and uh, they gave they ran out of winter coats, and so they gave them tobacco leaves, and so they said, "We will give you a hundred tobacco leaves for another five hundred acres." Okay, they again got the Choptank Indians down to a hundred acres of land, which was the final reservation. For the chop tank Indians. Now, what year uh, was this? This final sort of the final, they, they've whittled it down to basically a lar- a, 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 you know a farm of some sort. Hundred acres, okay. Yeah. Eighteen eighty two. Eighteen eighty two. So this is uh, this is post bellum America. There is a 
native reservation, albeit very tiny, near Cambridge, Maryland. It is a reservation, but it is uninhabited. Uh, oh, and so the right. state of and so the state of Delaware said we the state of Delaware, the state of Maryland went over and said, There's no one there. The Chopdeck Indians are extinct. We're gonna take back the reservation and we're gonna sell the land. Okay. Obviously there were still some Chopdeck Indians around and and they tried to uh, restore their traditions. And the names of, of the communities were um, uh, Nashua, and N-A-U-S-A, and, and uh, Wawasa, okay? Those were names of communities. They put them together and said, Nasawa Wawasa Indian Tribe. It's not an Indian tribe. It's two communities. But they couldn't use Chop Tank because if they use Chop Tank, they had to give them back the reservation. Okay. Um, again, this is history that that, and again, I I put the put the blame on me being educated in the state of Delaware. This isn't history that I learned in the state of Delaware, any place. Okay, and again, this is a truly pre-revolutionary war. Yeah, you told there's there's a couple things I want to hit on. Sure. That you were you sort of mentioned in passing when you first were talking about the story. Number one, and this is common. Um, you know, we see this in a lot of people's stories in Sussex County and Lewis and other areas. But um, the the set the colonial settler uh, is is trying to scratch out a living, uh, but also uh, you know making families with the people who are there, mm-hmm. uh, whether they be black people, native people, whatever tribe they're from. So over the course of a, over the course of say thirty fifty years, you're starting to already see sort of a, a mixing in community. That was one thing I would like maybe to talk about. Uh, maybe you could talk about that first, and then I kind of just want to find out what happened to the people as it got whittled down and, and, and they went away. But let's talk about sort of like the, just the society and how it was uh, sort of how it was set up and, and, and how it started to mix almost immediately. Jamestown, okay, uh, was the first in, uh, permanent English-speaking settlement in North America, and we get into some baits about there were some Spanish territories. We again, it's the way we write history here, we always write it from the English white perspective. So, the first settlement was at Jamestown. There were no men, there were no women there. <laughs> okay, so uh, the guys at, at, at uh, Jamestown used to just grab a woman, they used to grab an Indian woman. I mean, it was it was that simple. It was kidnapping, rape, whatever you want to call it. They used to just grab a woman and 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 bring her in. Uh, the Jamestown also again had the problem that they weren't prepared to come to the new world. And when I say prepared, is the Indians were eating corn, okay? Which means they knew that in the wintertime they had these call it a warehouse or a dugout or whatever that they stored the corn for the winter time uh the folks at jamestown were starving you know during the winter time because they hadn't planted any corn and didn't know how to adjust or adapt or or whatever and 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 so they were attacking the indians okay to really steal their corn in order to survive the indians gave a couple baskets or bushel of corn it wasn't enough so they used to declare war 
on the Indians just to get the corn. So again, they were were um, uh, again uh, stealing the corn and 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 raping the women in Delaware history. Okay, now we're got to come to Delaware for a while. There are Moors. Okay, now we know uh, uh, if we go to Spain, we know that the Moroccans took over Spain for literally hundreds of years, and then the Spanish kicked them out, and they went all over the world, and they were called Moors. But these Moors were, as you as you described it, these uh, European settlers who didn't bring women with them who were raping the indigenous people. And these mixed-race folks were called Moors. Okay? Um... And, 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 and so this takes a while to digest, okay? We assume we're talking civilized societies, but then you say, well, these guys came over with no women. They, this was not moving civilization. And then they were raping the women. And then we get into when, when we uh, talk about uh, what happened to the Indians. They say, well, the Europeans brought all these diseases with them. They brought smallpox with them and uh they they uh brought whooping cough with them and 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 the indigenous people um were were uh, uh you know not used to these diseases well they brought with them venereal diseases <laughs> okay so they were raping the women okay and 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 uh you know their society obviously wasn't wasn't you know immune to the, these uh, venereal diseases that the Europeans were bringing with them, and so and and again this taint, taints history. You know, if I give you a whooping cough, it's one thing. If I give you you know a venereal, some, somebody can a whooping cough. I feel like you can give me that. <laughs> if you give me syphilis, <laughs> I'm gonna be I'm gonna be pissed. <laughs> you know what? Absolutely. They got a smallpox vaccine now, but I don't want gonorrhea. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Um, and it changes the way you think of history. Again, you, you just, you know, drew the line to the Palestinians had their rights. The Indians had their rights, too. And and they had their rights against catching syphilis. Okay. I mean, somehow there's a line you should draw on here. That if you want to come over here and make friends, come over here and make friends. But don't steal our women and rape our women and steal our food and shoot us and blame and blame us. And don't give us the goddamn drip. <laughs> so before, I want, the one thing I do want to do is sort of get a little bit of like a rough timeline. Because as you said, I think it was interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, the original sort of taking away... I guess when when the uh, when the chop tank people started to leave and sort of um, I don't know what you would call it they knew they knew it wasn't going to go down for them there so they just basically decided to, to go do something else <clears throat> uh, and I think some of the like the real estate transfer had to do with in the early 19th century with Washington D.C. being taking a little bit of land from Maryland and they were getting some land or they were doing something with the fine, with the books. Um, but what? How long did it take for the the community there to sort of like abandon it? 
Uh, I'm sure it took a, a period of time because then, by the, as you said, by the late 19th century to 1880s, the, the, the land itself is, not, is basically nothing, but no one had been there and it had been abandoned for a period of time. You have to go back to the 1600s to understand what was going on before the Europeans uh, uh, came. There are the um, Chesapeake Indians and there are the Delaware Indians. And, and, and you think that's just nationality or tribe or whatever. That's the way the rivers flow, okay? The rivers that were flowing into the Delaware... Those are the Delaware Indians, and the then the Indians, the rivers that were flowing into the Chesapeake were the Chesapeake Indians. The Choptank River and the Nanakote River were flowing that way. Okay, there were trading posts among the Indians, and we're talking ten thousand years, literally. Okay, and the main trading post was, was uh, um, Ken Island. Uh, Bay Bridge, for those of us who... Yeah, a little Eastern Shore, a little Eastern Shore geography for everybody. A little Eastern Shore geography. For those of us who know where the Bay Bridge is, okay, and Ken Island. And Ken Island was actually the first settlement in Maryland. Again, we're back to Manhattan Island. This is Ken Island, which is sitting there where the Bay Bridge is now. The folks from the other side of, of the Chesapeake used to come over there and trade. And they used to trade arrowheads, which were, um, you know, valuable commodities made out of steel or metal or whatever. And you had to have the right arrowheads to, to work. And, and then you were tra- trading uh, beaver and then you were trading other instruments. And, and right there at the Bay Bridge was the trading post for all the tribes up and down the Chesapeake. Okay. Um, the Europeans cut that off. The Europeans said, well, we own the land. When they said the, the chop tank and every, everything north of the, of the Nanakote River, they, they uh, took them away from the uh, Bay Bridge or took them away from the trading post. And so they couldn't trade with the folks in Baltimore, which is where, again, where we're talking about. They, they again began to kill the beaver. <laughs> okay. Uh, and and the beaver have have a word I think is ecological. They're not just beavers. They're not like squirrels. They build dams, okay. And they dam up the rivers. And the damming of the rivers creates this incredible healthy environment over on the Chesapeake, which are blue crabs. Which blue crabs are still uh, you know plentiful over there in the area and clams and oysters and whatever. So the Chesapeake was, it was an incredible uh, productive area for crabs and, and clams and oysters and mussels and those things, but they were helped along by the beavers. Once you kill the beavers, the ecology changes. Okay. So uh, the Indians were losing their trading partners. They were losing their, shrimp and mussel and whatever because and losing the beavers and and so they didn't have beavers for winter coats they didn't have mussels to eat uh you know the europeans again weren't farmers they weren't growing corn was part of the crop uh and as the the uh the europeans came they changed the farming practices they weren't interested in 
in food production. Tobacco. Tobacco's cash is king. Gotta get that gotta get that cash crop. Interested in a cash crop for a European market. So they squashed the corn and started raising tobacco. So the so the exodus the the native exodus from the Chesapeake Bay uh, started basically when the first uh, white person stepped on 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 the island, you know, stepped over there and just said, "We're gonna, this is ours now." Uh, you know, it was a process, but but you know, the the point is well taken that when you go and apply, you know, cash crop, you just divvy up the land because you think it's yours on a piece of paper, and you just figure out a way to derive as much money out of it as you can while, as you said, raping and, and pillaging sure. as you go. Uh, yeah, the people who live there for tens of thousands of years, you know, they're, they're, they, at that time, they knew to fuck off. Um, what they didn't know is that it was going to be just a relentless drive um, for free real estate. Let me, let me add something to what you said. It wasn't when the first white folks showed up. It was when the first black folks showed up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when, yeah, yeah, when, yeah. Well, when, when the first black folks showed up, they said, you know, every every black person is, you know, 100 pounds of tobacco, okay? They were taking C- – Cambridge, Maryland was the second largest uh, slave port in the country other than Charleston, South Carolina. They were bringing in uh, slaves at cost, which sounds trained. Now we're in this economic what – is, what is a slave at cost? <laughs> <laughs> they were just bringing slaves in, and 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 and. Well, that's you know, the thing about that's the thing about um, this this revolution, colonial revolutionary war history, that I think is so important because people have in their mind the Civil War antebellum history of of plantation slavery, which is just horrendous, grotesque. You can hardly imagine it. But originally, uh, there weren't huge uh, sort of cotton and sugar plantations most of the sugar plantations are in the caribbean around here it was like tobacco that was like and, and there it's pretty well documented some of the from some of the diaries and uh and and things that exist sort of what this what the situation was in sort of the delmarva peninsula and yeah and that's it was it was a it was it, it was a sort of a different setup that i don't think people um really sort of get taught you know that that part of it you I think you get a little bit of stuff that, like that Civil War period time, but you don't get the colonial period time. And 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 when we read our, our history books, we say, well, uh, why did we fight the Revolutionary War? Well, we fought the Revolutionary War because of this, these tea tax or the stamped. So I know what you're doing to me. You're going to get me on. You're going to get me off on my George Washington tangent about taking taking uh, real estate out of Virginia, and they wouldn't go protect him. No, go ahead. I know. I know exactly what you're going to say. You're getting me fired up now. Well, the, the history book said it was something about tea because we threw it the, just up as in the Boston Tea Party was actually organized by the Chamber of Commerce of their time. Just had to do with people who didn't want to pay taxes. Right. You know what? The whole Boston Tea Party. They should throw the story about the Boston Tea Party into the harbor with yeah. the Boston Tea Party. Let's go back to why the Revolutionary War was was fought. The British were saying, you know, we got to give the Indians some territory. So everything west of the Mississippi is Indian territory. And and the the uh, Patriots said, we going west. <laughs> we go west. It's free real estate. We will go west as far as it goes. And 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 you know. 
the the Patriots that the British were saying, no, we got to give the Indians their territory. Uh, and then the British said, you know, you should end slavery. This is this slavery thing. You know, it's not really working out for everybody, especially the slaves. They were, you know, it was. <laughs> yeah, right. Like <laughs> it, it was really painful for them. And and uh, the the uh, colonists or the patriots said, we making money, boy. We making money hand over fist. We can't even count it fast enough. And and we're getting silver and gold for tobacco. Okay. What you know, what and they they ain't no limit. More slaves, more tobacco, more gold, more silver. We go get rich. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now do you think uh, I'm gonna close like the close our history lesson like this because we're working on Sort of a larger, as you said, you're you're we're, we're working on um, sort of, I guess, that's sort of promoting your project as well um, about this colonial area, local history. Um, do you think? What do you think the reception is going to be when we start telling people that like um, George Washington was a land, a dirty land speculator? Do you think you're going? Think how you think that's going to be received? Well, there there are several problems, and 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 one of them is is my personal problem. Nobody's paying me. It's back. <laughs> No, we're working on that too. You know, we're working on that as well. Who pays the truth teller? Okay, I mean, the truth teller doesn't get paid. You know, the guy who says Boston Tea Party, you know, that was it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel you on that. Let's change the history to something we can we can say. So I'm not sure we have a platform to tell the story again. You were the. You know, you were the Highlands. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, okay. But we're 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 um that is something we're also working on. I think, and oh well, you you know as well. I mean, I I think when we bring in more people to sort of to leverage and partner with more people, I think when we bring in people who can not be boring like me, but more present the material in a way like Kofi's going to do. I think that's really going to help. I had a conversation with our mutual friend, uh, Dale Norwood, over the weekend. He's kind of excited to sort of, like, support it in whatever way, you know, he can. You know, just being part of it because he's a a great – I mean, he's just a a fabulous historian. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm feeling – I mean, I'm not an optimistic person. But I feel like the team is coming together. We're getting, we're we're starting to get traction. People are are very excited about like the history Jordan Howell did for the East Side story, and so I think stuff's starting to starting to churn. So I, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, um, but you know, just keep churning, just keep churning. Again, the the problem is here in Delaware, we have two two tribes of Indians. We have the Nanakotes and we have the the Lena Lenape. If you go back to the late eighteen hundreds or 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 early nineteen hundreds, they were considered black folks. They had to go to school with black folks. Okay, they 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 were just black folks and they were just white folks and colored folks. They separated themselves. And re reestablished. I was about to say reinvented, but I'm not going to do the invention. Reestablished their histories, and so uh, this is how they are creating. They they lost their history. They lost their continuity. They were not on reservations. They bought land just like you bought your land. They had to go old fashioned way. <laughs> okay, uh, and, and so. They don't know their history either, That the kind of history we're talking about. The documents I sent you, 
they don't have access to those documents either. And again, I gave you transcribed documents, but these are cursive. And and you, if you say cursive to somebody today, it sounds like you were. So you and I are cursing yeah, yeah, at them. Yeah. <laughs> but cursive is scripts cur- as handwriting script on is, old is, deeds. Absolutely, and yeah. folks can't even read it today. And and you need to transcribe. It sounds like you're going from one. When I say transcribe, you're yeah. going from one language to another. But you're going from cursive to uh, typeset or text print. set. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you need that in in order to be able to read these documents and understand what these documents say. And even the Indians don't have that. Some of them don't even have these documents, and and don't have the time or money or whatever to transcribe them from cursive to, to text. And so we are all challenged to go back and, and find these documents, which are 250 years old, okay, in, in order to be able to tell this story, okay? Folks, I know you love these stories. This is why you come to the Highlands Bunker podcast. This is why you follow Sill's work. You understand it's very labor-intensive, so, you know, we'd all like to see a little bit of love. I said it last week. Start showing us some love. We'll spread that around. You know, tell people that if, you, if you're friends with, like, the, the Marxist version of, uh, who's the guy? Uh, who's the guy that uh, the J.D. Vance gave him money, gave the Arizona guy money? The real Peter Thiel. We need a Marxist Peter Thiel. If you know him, hit us up. It's uh, highlandsbunker at gmail.com. Hey, we're back, folks. How about that? Um, yeah, so thanks for the history lesson. And um, we'll, be, we'll be fleshing out that story in many, many ways in many months to come. So stay tuned for that because we're very, very serious about doing it. We needed that today, so thank you. Very good. You're welcome. Yeah, and, and, and uh, Brandon Fletcher, thank you for coming. Thank you for sort of like... Triggering in my mind when you said it was, indig- I was like, you know what, we got to put it all together. You know what I mean? But so thank you for that. Of course. I mean, w- there's like this whole thing of do you call it Christopher Columbus Day? Do you call it Indigenous Peoples Day? And it's like, you know, I feel like I've always called it Christopher Columbus Day because that's what we were taught it was in school. And so it wasn't until like recently. Um, when I started doing my own education and learning and exploring about it, that, you know, it's Indigenous Peoples Day and we need to honor the real and true history that isn't told, that isn't transcribed in our communities. And we have so. to change the whole history book because yeah. Columbus discovered America. Right. And, 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 right. and so we have to change mm-hmm. our mindset to say there were people here, okay? When, exactly. When Columbus landed in, in um, um, Hispaniola, there were two million indigenous people there. Within fifty years, there were none. Mm. That's the impact that the Europeans had on on the country. Mm. So let's tell the truth and let's tell the whole truth. Yeah, I actually said well, I was talking about this because I always tell this joke as a as an American of Italian descent. Uh, I know many people who are like they're like real Columbus heads. I what what I always tell them is I think once they took the statue down, they should throw it in the fucking river. However, what I really think, you know, take you know, breaking the wall here, put it in the museum, put it in the Delaware Art Museum, and let them tell the story of what it really is. 
because that's the only real place you can put it in context and say, yeah, for a long time, we thought this 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 fat ass uh, Italian guy like discovered something that wasn't there, and actually we were we 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 went through like a uh, centuries of delusion. Uh, so like they could tell that story in the museum, so that's where it should go. I agree with you because that because I think that goes that takes a step into the like what we're talking about and sort of like okay this stuff did happen, but let's put it in context. There were indigenous people on Hispaniola. And you know, within two generations, they're gone. Well, how'd that? I want. Well, gee, how'd that happen? You know, yeah. I think that I think that we we need to start again. We need to start not doing it in a boring academic way, <laughs> but putting the stuff in context for people. Because I think it. I mean, I really think it drives all the discourse. It drives like just how people treat each other. I think. I mean, I think it's it, how you interact with like. Stuff around you, if you see something that you know more about or you meet a person and, and get taught something that you didn't know before, it can only be helpful. And, and I have to celebrate my name. I'm celebrating a Wolford name, and I'm telling you how early they came in. But the Wolfords were Confederates. <laughs> okay. Go figure. Uh, go figure. Yeah. They owned, before the uh, Civil War, they owned about 400 slaves over in Dorchester County. So they were fighting to keep the slaves. We we know that. But but I have to celebrate my, my own history anyhow. I can't say, well, I, I'm not going to do the Malcolm X on everyone. I'm not going to go to X. Sil X? <laughs> Sil You're X. You're going to go Sil X? I'm I, not. I, you should... I'm not going to do Silex. I got to keep my name and I got to be proud of my name. But but I have to again acknowledge the history and acknowledge, you know, the folks who yeah. who that I was Well, owned. that's a, that's an important discussion too. I'm not going to open this can of worms. I'm just going to point out that we we come around to because it was big in this area and big in the time that we're talking about. We come around to the recolonization of Liberia all the time. And talk about it. And again, that history could get used in any number of ways. Like people will say, well, uh, Lincoln said they could go to Liberia. That's bad. Well, it's not great, but it's also uh, it's a contextual. And if you don't understand, the, uh, we've talked about it the last time you were here. If you don't understand what black, what black intellectuals and, and pastors and people were, do, were talking to each other about it, you're never going to understand what that is, what, what the idea of recolonization would be. So anyway... I'm not going to uh, uh, shortchange uh, Brandon Fletcher because I've been telling a lot of stories about you, about like, and maybe because I know you're you're sort of we're sort of not really partnering up, but I know that like you have a full team, and I know your team's applying the pressures and you're doing the program. I feel like you're doing the program, and I like it because it's serious. Can you talk a little bit about like why you're going to stand for office? Who is the incumbent there? What's the situation of the race? You know, how, 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 how did you come to this idea that you're going to do this? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm running for the state house, Wilmington, 3rd District. Um, I, I've been organizing nonstop, like, my entire life. Um, and it really wasn't until, I want to say, 2020, when I started to take organizing a little bit more serious um, because I was being evicted from my house. Um, you know, I was lost a job, you know, was just trying to figure out 
everything with my personal housing situation. Um, and, you know, I, I was navigating that system at the same time that my mom was de- dealing with housing issues. And so, you know, I started organizing for housing and, you know, tenants' rights and advocating. Um, and that sort of led me into this role of being a housing advocate, working with the Homes Campaign and pushing for housing policy, um, pissing off the mayor uh, of Wilmington. and right yeah. on the top of my list. Yeah, um, because of a lot of the things that we see at the municipal level that are leading to displacement, like uneven for- uh, code enforcement laws um, and, you know, development without any sort of, you know, rules put in place so that tenants, you know, could afford to actually live in the communities that are being gentrified. And so, you know, I really just started asking myself questions, like asking questions, like why, you know, why is land developing the way that it is in the city of Wilmington? Why are people being displaced? You know, what can we do better to make sure that people can keep their homes and not seeing anything really being done? Um, and, you know, getting involved. And, you know, that sort of led me to say, you know, I got to step up and run. And the current representative is Sherry Dorsey Walker. Um, she has decided to run for lieutenant governor. Um, and I decided to step up and run for the state house seat that she's now vacating. Yeah, it, it, it's it's funny. I was I mentioned before that there were some folks that came to the house yesterday for the birds game and have some of this food and um you know, can't help but not like sort of talk shop and we we're talking about Przicki and talking about this stuff and and you know when names are mentioned about people who are going to stand up I get excited again because every week or two weeks I'm like you know what fuck this politics shit electoral politics none of these they're not worth a guy and they sit there they come in here I talk to them and you know I understand they're doing a job I get that but I don't have really time for it like I don't have time for your bullshit and so, like, the list of politicians or, like, electoral politics people that I want to talk to is getting smaller and smaller. Um, but then names come up, like yours or others who I will, who will remain nameless right now, and I feel like I'm getting pulled, like the godfather, getting pulled back into it. Like, I wanted to get out, and now I'm going back in. Because I'm very excited. I mean, because I know that you've been organizing around housing here for tons of time. Um, you've been on here talking about it. Um, and I just, you know, I, I know that that's the kind of progress that we need. You're the kind of person that is going to be, a, a, you know, an asset for the people to try to counterbalance, you know, people that are just being crushed in this case by uh, by capital, really. Yeah, And also, I feel like, you know, the Wilmington delegation has not stepped up to the plate to really push against what we're seeing and and come up with solutions you know we're we have the downtown development district right here in wilmington where developers receive subsidies for you know luxury development and we could do things like make affordable housing and set aside units for people who can't otherwise afford to live in these new units it's just i feel like we have a visionless wilmington delegation who just, you know, are in the pockets of real estate developers and, you know, they control what happens in Dover. And so we need to ask ourselves, like, where do we want our city to go? And are we going to step up to the plate and really say, like, we can develop, but we have to make sure that people aren't displaced? Yeah, I mean, you put it Mm -hmm. in perfect, I think you 
have the perfect sort of breakdown for it. Because the, the reason sort of that the establishment, people from Wilmington at the state level, uh, be, you know, behave the way they behave is because they're actually part of that apparatus. Mm-hmm. You know, they're part of the BPG sort of development apparatus. And it really doesn't matter. I mean, the, the easiest example I always use is you always know if there's something like if there's new development on Market Street, you always know it's south of the Brandywine River because they'll never do anything on North Market Street. Yep. They haven't ever done – I don't think they've done one thing. Mm. And so in, – and then instead of going – now that they have – you know, they've, they've put some new stuff on, on market. They sold stuff to Chase. Now instead of going that way on market, they just go in and try to get South Bridge and call it uh, – the river, what were they calling it? Riverfront East. Riverfront East. They're trying to re- rename mm-hmm. Southbridge. People lived in Southbridge for, yeah. you know, Hanif has talked about mm-hmm. it. People live in Southbridge, black people lived in Southbridge for hundreds of years. And you have millions. Now they're calling it fucking Riverside East. And millions of dollars going into a community that isn't even there yet. But you have, I don't know how many people live in Southbridge, but however many people there who, you know, are suffering right now and are economically disadvantaged and it's by design, you know, but, are, you know, I feel like what are our leaders doing? Yeah, and this is you, why you're so well positioned yeah. for it because you're, you've, you come from a background, the way that you're engaging with people is through housing and tenants' rights, which I think is, is, is like just a great focal point for the community that you're, that you're working in. Mm-hmm. Because that's where it is. We were just talking about yeah. it's land use, it's development, it's uh, you know corporate land use, capital development, all that. You know, it's just that's what it is. It's landlords and tenants, basically. Yeah, that's and that's homeowners the- too, like legacy homeowners, right? Like you have a lot of people who are low income homeowners, right? You know, our seniors who are had their home yeah, a long time, who've had, had their home a long had, time, had right? And then the time, city yeah. raises water rates by six, you know, six point eight percent. What impact is that going to have on them and their ability to hold on to their home? You know, you you give tax breaks to luxury developers, but you don't, you know, you say you have a homeowner repair program. But when a senior goes to apply for the homeowner repair program, they're just thrown in a loop and don't have access to, you know, to none of the money in order to help them. So, you know, like, those are the types of things that I'm like, what can we do at the state level? to try to make sure that the people who live in our communities could stay in their communities. And I think, you know, being a housing advocate, I see firsthand what people need. They just need the ability to keep up their home, their ability to, you know, make, pay the mortgage, you know, pay the rent, and we have to support that. Yeah, I, I keep going back to all the work that Jordan Howell did about the East Side. And you read that story, and, and it, 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 it it co- it transpires over, you know, 100 years, 150 years, basically, from, yeah, more than that, actually. And you think about how slowly you chip away and for the reasons you chip away and who gets displaced and why. And you just see the, that repeating again and again. And actually, I've mentioned this to Jordan. I don't know if you've heard it, but, you know, you look at how they did it in the 60s and 70s and 80s. They're actually getting better at it. They were actually very... The, the, one of the lines to the story of the East Side is they were very bad at it, so they were fumbling, so we could kind of make fun of it in a way. I mean, it's serious, but we could kind of say, look at how, you know, it's all DuPonts. They don't know what they're doing. They couldn't even do anything. Now they're actually very good at it. Przicki, BPG, they got it down. 
So it's 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 time for someone who understands that sort of dynamic to to step up. So I'm I'm very excited about it. So how can people? I I know you're already I, I know you're having strategy sessions every week. I know you you're already having people knock doors and go out. Where are you at in the campaign? What are you doing right now? And what? How can people sort of get involved? Yeah. So I mean, the number one way is like you know I'm not taking any corporate packs no real estate developer or law enforcement money. Um, so we do need to raise money in order to pay for our campaign. Um, so my website's brandonfletcher.com and you can contribute. And where we're at with the campaign, I say like we're sort of building the campaign right now. We, you know, we're going to be having these, you know, people's assemblies where we're going into the community and just simply asking people, what are your needs, ideas, and priorities? What, you know, what is the third district? What is a state representative? What does the state legislature do? Um, and sort of doing that component of the campaign so that people can know. Civics you know, lesson. Yeah, Civics 101, right? Yeah, and We just have one, actually. Yeah, yeah. Sort and of. so teaching, going into that, teaching people, you know, telling people who I am because I've never ran for office before and sort of developing our platform out of there. I know I have a sense I'm going to fight for affordable housing, for investing in young people, you know, for Medicare for all and things like that. But, you know, really bringing it to the people. So knocking on doors, making phone calls and not just expecting people to come to me, but, you know, going to the people. So I see this race as just an extension of the community organizing work that I've been doing um, and, you know, having people become a part of this campaign. So it's really exciting. Like my neighbors are my campaign and it's, yeah. it's awesome. That's 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 a good yeah. So what? So, last thing. Mm -hmm. Let's get into it a little bit, because um, the incumbent who's now obviously going to run for what I've what some people refer to as the most senator senator, what I refer to as uh, Mrs. or Mr. Irrelevant, um, the the lieutenant governor. But you do get to you do get to do the thing where you you know you get to preside over the Senate, so you can. You can make a bit out of it, I guess. Yeah. It's fun, and you can pardon people, which is yeah, cool. Yeah, you're on the mm -hmm. you're, you're on the, uh, the the pardon, but they don't do it enough though. Because you know who else? Because uh, the treasurer sits on that, Colleen Davis, and she was in there. And we talked about it. I was like, "What's the process? Why aren't you pardoning any more people? How does it work?" Um, but apparently, uh, for all the other things we've said about her, Bethany was pretty good about trying to push like uh, pardons and stuff through and parole. But in any case, I don't want to get off on that. Um, yeah, I mean, but we do have uh, someone who is a, is a more or less establishment figure, as you said, who who will definitely take big real estate money, who will definitely take police money, who is not, um, who can be counted on by the establishment, by the status quo sort of institutions to vote the right way. And so um, are you expecting a challenge from that wing of the Democratic Party? I think they have, I don't know, they may have someone in mind who they want to replace, you know, Sherry, but I'm just focused on my race right. and, and running it. Um, I expect to have a primary election, but, you know, we're just going to bring this campaign to the people and, and knock on all the doors and talk to people and, and engage with the community. It just doesn't matter. Yeah, 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 I don't, you know, I don't really care. They can bring it, bring it on. Like, let's do it. But um, we'll see. I see. Yeah. We're in like the we'll see, you know, we'll see phase of this. Yeah, because there's still. Well, that's the other mm -hmm. exciting thing about this is, 
you saw the opportunity, you knew you had the background, your neighborhood person, and and you're starting now. Like you're you're you've hit the ground running. You have a sort of a team. You have a strategy. And things are happening that I'm seeing happen, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, the good thing is, even if the establishment kind of like they can sit with their thumb up their ass for three months or six months, and then they find somebody, and it's like somebody they found. You know, this is it's a nobody. They never show up. It's a joke. So keep doing what you're doing because the longer you do it, the harder it's going to be for them to do anything. And just fucking just just solidify it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm I'm pumped about it. Thank you. And I'm young, but I have the energy and and what well, we didn't tell to you do is, it. Uh, Brandon is he's 13 so. years old. We don't even know. <laughs> we actually don't even know if it's legal for him to be running right now. But he's he is going to he's going to run. He's not 13 years old. Come on. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm excited about it. Um, and, you know, we're just going to run a grassroots campaign. I You know, i got to give credit to some of my mentors, like Drew, Carl, like people who, like, have really taught me how to do, like, better community organizing and campaign work. Um, because it's You didn't really, have to mention Carl, though. No, 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 no. He, he's got to get mentioned. He does a lot of work, uh, good work. Um so yeah, that's the work we're gonna do. You know, this campaign isn't just about me. Like we have young people on our campaign who want to learn about how to organize, how to build relationships in their communities to, you know, affect change on their blocks. So, really exciting stuff. And I, I'm very pumped about it. Thank you. So, th- well, first of all, thank you for coming in. Everything you just said will be linked in the show notes. We know that. And again, you had the idea. For Indigenous Peoples Day to have Sil come in and, and, and give this. And I'm glad you guys can meet each other because I never know who knows each other. What do, what do I know? Um, so last last thought for Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, we have a, uh, you know, we, had a, we have a catchphrase here. Uh, left is best. And left is best. I mean, that's, that's just true. Um, but when we started this, we, we used to... Um, we used to say Lula Livre because the left wing, the Workers' Party uh, president of Brazil, was they actually put him in prison. And there was a sort of a, a, a right wing reaction. Um, but now he's the president again, so Lula is Livre. Um, but I think we're going to have to start talking about Julian Assange and getting Assange out of prison. Um, I, I get that he's like a weird guy. Um, but if he was really like, if he really did like sexual assaults maybe he would be charged with that but it's been 10 years and i don't think he's going to be charged with that so i think um because he was able to get a um like a cd of 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 a uh, of a helicopter gunner mowing down people in the street indiscriminately because he was able to get that video um they have him locked up 23 hours a day in bell in belmarsh in, in in england and it's fucked up so I, th- I think, and we have a pretty good record with these, right? We have a pretty good record with the with the with the freedom stuff. So, I guess what we'll say is um, is free Assange, and um, what else should we say? Oh, Elastine Hura.